our guest today, Tim Barton. Uh, Timothy is a speaker with Wall Builders, which is a national pro-family organization that presents America's forgotten history and heroes. And I know you're going to enjoy today. It's going to be powerful. Put your hands together, won't you please, for Timothy Barton. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. By all means, please have a seat. Um, it, it's my pleasure to be with you. I represent an organization called Wall Builders. Uh, the name comes from the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah looked at the walls of, of the temple that had been torn down, and he said, we're a reproach. We need to rebuild the walls that we may no longer be a reproach. And that's what Nehemiah did. That's where our name comes from. We feel like the walls of our nation, whether it's the, the spiritual, the moral, religious walls, have been torn down, and we want to see those rebuilt. Hey, would you all mind clicking from the beginning so we can start the presentation? That'd be awesome. Thank you. Uh, we, we do a lot with American history to kind of retell some of those stories, to, to remember some of the heritage that we've lost. And, and, and in our collection, we have over 120,000 things from before 1812. It's the largest private collection of original documents. And so a lot of what I'm going to show this morning is things from that history. But before we really get too much into this, I do want to start. I, I appreciate that I'm in a church that we took time to honor our veterans um, I, both my grandfathers served military. Um, one was on Pearl Harbor the day it was bombed. So World War II, a lot of heritage in my family. Both my brothers are currently active serving. So I really appreciate our military. And, and even today as we talk about our nation and, and, and how special some of the things we have in our nation, there, there really wouldn't be a special nation to talk about if it wasn't for our military. And so we definitely want to appreciate the military. Yeah, absolutely. So for everybody that's serving, uh, family members that have served, those that have, have lost their lives in the name of, of our freedom for our nation, we're so grateful. Um, one of the things, as, as, as we study history, um, we see something that, that the Bible really laid out for us pretty well. The Bible tells us to render honor to whom honor is due, and this is something that is, it should not be confusing for us as a nation. When you have people that are fighting to defend our right to live as free people, that's something we want to honor, we want to appreciate. And so as we talk about today the history of our nation, everything we're talking about and the things I'm going to point to, really, we, I mean, we could talk about military history for a long time. Our nation had some pretty amazing military heroes, a lot of, of heroic, courageous people that have laid down their life that have gone before us. And this, by the way, is not something that is out of place for a church. Because if, if you read your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 11. That's our faith hall of fame, right? All the heroes of the faith we're supposed to embody, emulate, learn lessons from them. Almost every one of them was military active at some point in their life. And, and so this is where even, even as you read the Bible, this is something that, you know, the Bible tells us that God is the one who gifts our hands for war is what David wrote. And so this is something that this is not an, an unbiblical thought to discuss this in church. But even here in church, especially, we want to give honor to those people. And, and as we say this, looking at our nation, our military has, has done things, fought to defend our freedom in our nation. And this is something, as, as, as we do this in our nation, we really do have a special nation. And, and I'm saying that not nonchalantly. Uh, I, I've been a pastor on staff at a church for a lot of years, and I've led a lot of mission trips to third world nations. And if you think our nation isn't special, join me the next time we go. Right? Let's go hang out in Guatemala for a few weeks. Let's go hang out some places where, where they don't enjoy the freedom. 
where, where they don't enjoy the stability. In fact, when we were in Guatemala, we, we were uh, working with an orphanage and we were rebuilding one of their facilities and we had to do some plumbing. And, and, and actually, it's, it's harder to do plumbing in Guatemala because you can't YouTube how to do it. So you, it's tougher in America. I can YouTube it and figure anything out. But we had to go, we had to go pick up stuff at the store so we could do this plumbing project. And the missionary said, okay, I want you to put all the money in your sock, except I want you to have a $5 bill in your pocket. That way, when the military stops you and they go through your pockets, they'll have something you can give them. But when you give them what you have, they'll let you go. Then you can go with the rest of the money and get the plumbing supplies. And I thought, wait a second. You mean when I'm robbed, not if, when I'm robbed. And, and this is, he said, yeah, that's right. He said, you're, you're going to be robbed because there's corruption. It's just, we, we don't understand how special what we have in America is. We really don't. We, we don't understand when half the world lives on less than $2 a day. One quarter of the world, 1.9 billion people live on less than a dollar and a quarter a day. And, and, and we're complaining that we don't get a big enough welfare check in America. Like, are, right? Oh my gosh. Poverty in America is defined as a family of four making $40,000 or less. Then you live in poverty, you qualify for government assistance benefits. I'm from Texas. And in Texas, we, we see an influx immigration issue in Texas. But here's what's significant. There's a reason we have an immigration problem and China doesn't. Because people actually want to live in America. See, today we talk about how bad America is. In fact, I had a debate with a college professor last summer, and this professor told me, he said, America has done more bad than we've ever done good. I said, interesting. I said, well, well just for the sake of our conversation, what are all the bad things we've done? He said, well, because we had slavery in America, because we didn't give women's rights to the 1900s. I said, okay, let's just talk about those two issues. You're saying America's bad, and the standard you're raising, number one, is slavery. I said, can you tell me a nation that in the history of the world never had slaves? In fact, could you even tell me a people in the history of the world that were never enslaved? I mean, it's interesting, right? We, we forget. See, one of the things, one of the things we do is, is we measure on a scale that's very inconsistent. We, we don't measure on the same scale for the rest of the world. We say America's bad because of slavery. Do you know right now, slavery still exists in the world? This isn't hypothetical. And, and, and not even like human trafficking, because that's a different kind of evil of slavery. But the evil of slavery, do you know right now there are more people enslaved in the Middle East than at any time ever before in the history of the world? I mean, it's, it's interesting. Because people want to talk about America's bad because we had slavery 150 years ago. But we don't want to talk about places in the Middle East. It's so, I mean, it's just interesting. So I said, okay, wait a second. To this professor, I said, now, now you're saying a nation's bad because of slavery, but by your definition, every nation in the history of the world is a bad nation. I said, but let me ask this question. In what nation did white people fight white people to free the black slaves? Because it's happened once. It was called the Civil War. Now, I'm not trying to excuse America because we've done a lot of things in our nation that were wrong. In fact, I would argue we're still doing things in our nation wrong. Any nation that murders 60 million unborn children, you have issues. Right? I mean, that's problems. But here's what's significant. In the midst, in the midst of problems, every nation for, for the rest, uh, until Jesus comes back, every nation is going to have problems. And, and there's one significant reason they have problems. 
Because they're full of people. Right? I mean, there's a reason Jesus came. But what we do, and, and this is where I had this debate with this professor. He says, well, America's so bad. I said, okay, even like if this is a standard, and, and, and yes, then every nation in the history of the world is bad. But I would still contend we're one of the best of the bad nations because we fought a war to end slavery. Right? I mean, that's, that's a big deal. I said, now, women's rights. This is an interesting one. Because feminism, let's do it. I said, okay, great. So where do women have more rights than in America? Well, I'm not talking about today. I said, well, I know you're not talking about today. I said, but just, just for the sake of discussion, where do women have more rights than in America today? He said, nowhere. I said, and what nation gave women those rights before they got them in America? Do you know Saudi Arabia, within the last month, voted to allow women to drive? Now, I would argue that's a mistake, but... <laughs> I'm kidding. Kind of. You have nations that are just now giving women an inkling of rights. But, but here's what happens is we talk about how bad and evil America is. Now, again, I'm not contesting that we haven't had issues and that we still don't have issues. Every nation does. And this is why we would even argue, this is why as Christians, we got to be engaged with society around us because the solution to these problems is Jesus, right? This is what our culture needs is we need a little bit more of the word of God and culture. But here's what's significant is even with our problems, our nation enjoys things that no other nation does. Do you know the average length of a constitution in the world is 17 years? We wrote ours in 1787 and it's still going. Every single year, we set a new world's record for the longest lasting constitution in the history of the world. By the way, do you know most nations average a revolution every 30 to 40 years? We can't even fathom that. But for some of our military individuals that have been overseas to the Middle East, it's not unusual for them to have such unrest and, and they have somebody new come to power and now everybody get your guns, we're gonna throw them. I mean, civil war is normal for most of the world. We enjoy stability at an unprecedented level. We enjoy prosperity, we, we enjoy freedoms. We enjoy things that nobody else enjoys to the level that we enjoy them here in America. And this is why the phrase American exceptionalism comes back from the 1830s. A French philosopher came to America, Alexis de Tocqueville, and he said, what you have in America is really exceptional. He said, no democratic people will probably ever enjoy what you are enjoying in America. Well, well that's true even to this day. We enjoy things at an unprecedented level. And so knowing that, that our nation has enjoyed things at a level that other nations have not enjoyed, it would be interesting to ask the question, well, well who are the, the people that have, have given us this? Who, who are the leaders responsible for what we accomplished in America? Now, if you went to a, a, a high school student today and said, okay, who are the people most responsible for America? If you look at a history book, you might hear names like George Washington, which would be a valid name. He was the first commander-in-chief. He led the military. He was our first president. You might hear names like Thomas Jefferson because he's the one that wrote the Declaration. The, the, the first time we heard the thought that all men were created equal because over in Europe they had classes and levels of people. And so we said, no, no, no. In America, we believe that all men are created equal. I mean, it was an, an, a unique thought. Well, Jefferson then becomes a third president. You have people like John Hancock who is, is largely responsible for the revolution. He was the president of Congress. The British said, if we can kill John Hancock, we can stop the revolution. So, so this is a big name. But, but I want to point to somebody beyond these three, and that's John Adams. Now, John Adams still, he, he's a significant name. Oh, great. Okay. 
John Adams was the first vice president, second president, he was a signer of the declaration, but John Adams, more specifically to our point, in 1818, there was a, a young writer, Hezekiah Niles, who, who wrote John Adams, says, hey, I'm writing a book, and, and, and I want you to read this book, it's a history book of the U.S., and I want you to read it and, and tell me if I got it right. And in this book, Hezekiah Niles talked about all the people who were influential in, in founding and establishing America. John Adams reads it, he sends him a letter back, and in this letter, John Adams says, well, You've included a lot of important people, but there's a few people that you have to include. If you're going to talk about the most influential people to founding our nation, you have to include, and he named these guys, the Reverend Samuel Cooper, and you have to include the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. Now, they're both pastors. Why would John Adams say pastors are two of the people most responsible? Well, it gets even better, because he then wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson. To Jefferson, he says, if it was not for the work of the Reverend George Whitfield, there wouldn't even be an America. In a following letter, he says, without the work of the Reverend Charles Chauncey, America never would have survived beyond her infancy. Now, this is interesting, because John Adams, in his life, consistently pointed to pastors as being the people responsible for America. Now, I haven't read that in many history books. They don't talk about pastors, but here's what's interesting. I can go beyond just those four. Now, I will point out, well, you might have known the name George Whitfield if you know about the First Great Awakening, but you probably couldn't tell me anything about Mayhew or Cooper or Chauncey. I can go even further, though, because if we look at pastors that were so influential in the founding of America, there are people that I know we don't know, but we should if we knew history. People such as, you can look at, at the Reverend Richard Allen and the Reverend Absalom Jones. Now, those are two black pastors from the founding, but what's interesting is they pastored white churches. In fact, they pastored white churches where founding fathers went. Now, wait a second. We're told today that everybody in early America was racist. So let me just throw out a thought. If you're a racist white cracker, who would you never have as your pastor? I mean, it's interesting. Today, we've never heard of these guys, although they, again, they pastored white. In fact, they were friends with, with Dr. Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush is considered one of the most significant founding fathers by early historians because he served on three different presidential administrations. Back up. He signed the Declaration, helped ratify the Constitution, then he served on three different presidential administrations. He was director of the U.S. Mint. He started five universities. Three of them still go today. He actually started one of the first Bible societies in America. He's the one that started the Sunday School Movement in America. He started the first academic education for women, the first academic education for African Americans. Under the king, it was illegal to do higher education for women and for blacks. He said, no, 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 we're getting rid of that. He starts the first abolition society in America. I mean, this guy's resume is just astounding. Well, he is friends with these two black pastors, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. And, and actually, he says, guys, you know, one of the things I see in America is, is that we have so many blacks that have come from Africa and they don't know the gospel. You should start a, a whole movement just to, to evangelize the blacks in America. Well, they formed the very first black denomination in America, the AME denomination, who that was actually Benjamin Rush is one of the guys. So a white guy is responsible for helping found the black denomination? Yeah. He works with those two guys. Those three guys work together. And it wasn't just that they worked together on. They worked together their whole life. And in fact, they lived in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia in 1793, they had what was a, a, kind of a disease, but it was known as the yellow fever epidemic. And this epidemic, as it breaks out, now Benjamin Rush is a doctor. So Benjamin Rush, and he's the most famous medical doctor in American history, came up with medical cures over 200 years ago that are still in use today. Over 200 years ago, he wrote that he says, we've just now discovered 
that smoking causes lung cancer and chewing tobacco causes mouth cancer. So that's not a new revelation, apparently. They knew that a long time ago. Well, this, this yellow fever epidemic breaks out in 1793. And, and, and as this fever breaks out, there were 40,000 people in Philadelphia. It killed 4,000 people. Hundreds of people were dying every day. And, and as this is happening, a lot of the elite, they're saying, okay, we're out of here. We're not staying. We're not getting sick. We're not dying. But that meant most of the doctors left too. Well, Benjamin Rush stayed behind. Actually, it's interesting. He wrote, he said, there's no reason for me to leave because the Bible says it's appointed unto man when he dies. He says, so I'm not going to go before God wants me. And as long as I'm here, I'm supposed to do good serving men. So I'll stay here and serve people. And if God wants to take me home, he can take me home. So he stayed, but he also was joined by those two pastors, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. Now, they were not medical professionals, so Benjamin Rush gives them a medical clinic. He says, this is how we help people. This is what we need to do, which let me also throw out another interesting thing. So one of the things that they discovered, and actually you can back up to the Black Plague over in Europe, but one of the things we discovered medically, and, and really there was the application of this that changed the, the, the spread of the yellow fever epidemic, is doctors used to, when they would go between patients, they would wash their hands in a bowl, go work on a patient, before the next patient, they'd come and wash their hands in the same bowl. So all they're doing is stirring up the germs between patients and sharing it. And so one of the things that was interesting is the doctors, one of the doctors was reading from Leviticus. And one of the health standards that God told the Israelites is that you're supposed to wash your hands with running water. So the doctor said, okay, have this pitcher pour it. And so they would pour it and they wash their hands under the running water. Well, this cleanliness actually is what led to the end of the epidemic because they were able to contain it and not spread it and pass it on to other people. Interesting how the Bible played a part in that. But these guys stayed behind. In fact, Richard Allen, when he, when he wrote his biography, one of the things he included in this was right here, containing a narrative of the yellow fever in the year of our Lord, 1793. So this was a pretty well-known story. Today, we've never heard of these two black pastors or their involvement in early America, pastoring white churches, working with the founding fathers. Yes. We've ne well, let me give you another one. Here's one of my favorite examples. John Morant is one of my favorite examples because of his story. He, he actually was born a free black in America, and his parents decided when he was six years old that they wanted him to, to have some higher learning. And so one of the things they did is they started musical training. So at six years old, they got him a violin, he started playing the violin at six years old. Well, he really dedicated himself. At the age of 11, he was already playing concerts, a concert violinist at the age of 11. Well, at the age of 13, he's joined up with a traveling band, more or less, and they would travel from city to city, put on concerts, and people would dance, and they would do things. Well, as he's on his way, 13 years old, to a city to go perform a concert, he's walking by, and he's with his friends. Out in the field, there's a man he writes, there was a man in the field who was yelling and screaming. Now, the man was standing under this big oak tree. And so as this man was yelling and screaming, his friends said, hey, take this horn, a trumpet, take this horn, climb up the tree, get out on a branch over the top of him, and blow it right behind him. It'll scare him. It'll be so funny. Right, dumb 13-year-old. So he climbs a tree. He's going to blow the trumpet. Well, right before he blows the trumpet, he's taking a breath. He says, the man turned around and pointed at me. Now, it's probably worth, worth noting, the man was actually the Reverend George Whitfield. So he says, the man turned around and pointed at me, and he yelled, prepare to meet thy maker. He said, and I was so frightened, I couldn't move. He says, and then I started slipping, and I fell from the tree. 
He says, I hit the ground and I still couldn't move. He says, I, I was conscious, but it was as if I was paralyzed. I, I just couldn't move. Well, he says, I had to listen to the man talk. So the Reverend George Whitfield finished talking. And at the end, John Morant says, I want to know more about this Jesus. I, 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 well, John Morant ends up getting saved, gives his life to God, gives his life to Jesus, and spends the next several weeks being mentored by the Reverend George Whitfield. In fact, he's so impressed with, with the gospel message he's learned, he writes his parents a letter. He says, Mom, Dad, great news. I met Jesus. I'm a Christian. His parents were not. They wrote him a letter back and said, well, if you've bought into that nonsense, don't even bother coming home. We, we, we don't want another Jesus person around here. So he's 13 years old, and he's now been told he can't go home. So, so what does he do? Well, he became friends with a young Cherokee boy. And the Cherokee said, hey, you come live with me in the woods. I've learned how to live off the woods. We'll be fine. We'll survive. So he goes and lives in the woods with this young Cherokee boy. Well, apparently they weren't as good as hunters as they thought because they started to get hungry. So the Cherokee boy says, hey, let's go back to my tribe. They eat better than we do. Let's get back there, and it'll be much better for us. So they go back to the Cherokee tribe. The problem was when they get back to the tribe, the chief was not welcoming outsiders. And so the chief actually said... You take and execute him. Now, the chief did not speak English. John Morant didn't speak Cherokee, so the young boy is translating between them. So they actually take John Morant, and they are getting ready to execute him. And the chief, through this boy translator, asked John, is there anything you want to say before we kill you? John writes and says, I'd never spoken Cherokee a day in my life, but all of a sudden I begin to speak fluent Cherokee. He says, I don't know what I said, but I spoke for several minutes, at the end of which the chief said he wanted to get saved, and he wanted to make me a prince of the tribe. <laughs> the chief then asked John if he would be willing to go to the other Cherokee villages and share the same message he had just shared. John's like, I don't know what it was, but they want me to go a witness. So this is John Morant. Well, John Morant, that's where he started, but he goes on to become a pastor during the founding era, again, working with many founding fathers, but he's another guy. His story's amazing. Like, this would be a fun story to have in history books, but for some reason, we've never heard the name John Morant, or even a guy like Lemuel Haynes. Lemuel Haynes was an indentured servant. He actually got his freedom at 21, went on to become a pastor again, worked with many founding fathers, but he got his freedom age of 21, and it was 1774. So it's the beginning of the conflict with Great Britain. He joins the Massachusetts Minutemen as a free black and says, I want to fight for our freedom. Well, as he fights with the Massachusetts Minutemen, he then gets assigned to serve under George Washington. He works closely with Washington through the entire revolution. In fact, I mean, there's many stories of, of, of their encounters, but at the end of the revolution, he decides, I, I, I want to become a pastor. So he goes to seminary. He studies Greek, studies Latin. At the end of which he comes out, he starts a church. He's a pastor. Well, one of the significant things is Lemuel Haynes, every single year on George Washington's birthday, he would deliver a sermon about the great Christian faith of George Washington, about what he had personally seen the faith of Washington through the revolution, told these stories. Now, to me, that's significant because today we're told that George Washington is a deist. But this black pastor that knew him, that fought with him in the revolution, says, oh, no, 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 no. The general was a Christian. In fact, an ardent, outspoken Christian. I mean, it's, just, it's interesting because these are guys who worked with the founding fathers, pastors significant involved in the revolution. And today we've just never heard of these pastors. Now, John Adams, he's the one that said, if it was not for the pastors, 
America never would have accomplished what she's accomplished. He said, if you're going to write a history book, make sure you talk about the pastors. Today, we've never heard the pastors. And so today, Americans have no idea how influential pastors were in our founding. Let me give you another fun example. Easy to see the influence. If you would talk about the name Harry Hoosier, a lot of us today wouldn't know that name. Well, he was a pastor in the Second Great Awakening. He was known as the Reverend Harry Hoosier. And he felt that God had called him to go to the far, wild western frontier. Now, back in early America, the Second Great Awakening era, we we're talking about kind of just after the 1800s to about the 1860s, 70s. So really, it's a kind of a long span. But America has not done a lot of westward expansion yet. So when he's a pastor, the Wild West was Kentucky. That's over on the east, right? That's not the west. But he felt that God had called him to go evangelize the wild men in the west. So he went out to Kentucky, starts evangelizing. Well, while he's evangelizing, he goes from Kentucky, actually goes up to Indiana. And, and, and they talked about how there were dramatic conversions. As he went all over Indiana, they said, you could go to a town in Indiana and you could see these people are different. That something about them is, in fact, they said it was like there were just a bunch of little Hoosiers running around. Now, let me just bring to your attention, in Indiana, there's a university, and their university, they're, they're known as the Hoosiers. I would argue that probably most people in Indiana don't know they're named after a black pastor from the Second Great Awakening. But this is the influence of Christians in the church in America that today we have no idea about. We have no idea how significant Christianity was to the foundation of our nation. But again, this is what, I mean, John Adams says, no, 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 it's, it's obvious. The pastors were so involved. John Adams constantly talked about, wrote several letters about this. And let me give you another easy example. See, even if we just took our declaration, there's 27 grievances in the declaration. Do you know it's been historically documented that all 27 grievances had been preached from American pulpits prior to 1763? Over a dozen years before there was ever a revolution, Pastors had been in their pulpits, opening their Bible, saying, okay, this is what's happening in culture around us, but this is what the Word of God says. Pastors dealt with every single issue. Now, today that would seem like a little bit weird, because today we go, oh, pastor, you can't be political. You're... Well, back then, they thought they were just being biblical, right? Because if it's in the Bible, let's just talk about what the Bible says. It just so happens the Bible applies to every area of life. So the Bible applies to your family. It applies to your job, to your business, to your employees, and to your nation. This is what the Bible does. Well, let me give you a, a, an example. One of the things that happened, that there was a pastor, John Wise, and this is his sermons. This was published in 1687. Now, that's way before the Revolution, way before the Declaration. But in 1772, the Sons of Liberty reprinted these sermons, distributed them throughout all America, and in these sermons, John Wise had preached a sermon where in this sermon he says that all men are created equal. And we are endowed by our creator with rights. Now that's actually from the declaration, but it was preached in this pastor's sermon. John Wise preached another sermon where he said that God's preferred form of government is the consent of the governed. He preached another sermon where he said that taxation without representation is tyranny. This was a pastor, and this is what the Sons of Liberty reprinted. In fact, these pastors were so well-recognized. You know, the British actually had a name for them. The British called them the Black Regiment. Not because all pastors were black, but because every pastor, regardless of denomination back then, they wore black clerical robes. And they said, well, those, oh, that Black Regiment. The British says if it was not for the American clergy, the American colonists would be happy 
ignorant British colonists. But the pastors, the clergy, are stirring them into revolt and revolution, into rebellion. Well, it was pastors who weren't afraid to talk about what was going on in culture. In fact, you know one thing pastors used to not be afraid to talk about? This is a sermon. It's an election sermon. Now, there's not many sermons more unpopular today. Oh, pastor, don't be political. But let me just point out something. Do you know in America, we had the very first election in America in 1619 in Jamestown. The very first election sermon that we've been able to find came from 1633. But here's what happened. Every single year, and back then, I mean, we didn't have, under our Constitution, we have a president for four years, we have senators for six, representatives for two, and every state does different things. But back then, we elected officials one year at a time because we thought there should be more accountability, right? If they're bad, we don't want them there for six years. One's the most, I mean, it's interesting, but every year they had elections. So every single year before the elections, the pastor would open the Bible and say, what does the Bible tell us about the leaders we should choose? Do you know the Bible does give a lot of guidance on the leaders you should choose? In fact, you can read Exodus 18, and it says you should choose capable men that fear God, men of truth, that hate covetousness. The Bible gives, and so that's what they did. Every year before the election, they would give a sermon of the kind of people you should look for. People that have higher character than just their party affiliation. Interesting, right? But this is what we used to teach. Now, what's also significant is they then had a follow-up sermon, but it wasn't an election sermon. What happened, this is an example. This is a sermon preached before His Excellency John Hancock, the governor, Lieutenant Governor Sam Adams, and then the Honorable Council, Senate, and House Representatives, all of the elected officials. After the election was held, they then brought all the elected officials either to the state capitol and invited the pastor, or they brought them all to the church where the pastor was. Nonetheless, there was a pastor who delivered a sermon to all of the elected officials. I mean, imagine the governor of Alaska, lieutenant governor, all the elected officials, and your pastor gets to deliver the sermon. Now, if, if most pastors were given an opportunity to do that today, probably most of them would center on, you need Jesus in your life. And that would be good. But if you look at these early sermons, none of them mention Jesus. Who they mentioned were Moses and Gideon and, and Daniel. They go through all the early lawgivers, and they say, it's very clear that God chose and raised people up to give laws, but you need to understand the standards that God upholds as you are a lawgiver and the kind of laws you should give and the expectations God. I mean, it's really an incredible accountability and biblical outline guideline of the kind of laws you should pass. But they did this every single year in every single colony where there was elections. Pastors were literally preaching, and it wasn't just elections. See, elections happened every year, so pastors preach a sermon every year. But it was way more than just elections. Here's another sermon. This is on a solar eclipse. <laughs> Why in the world would you preach a sermon on a solar eclipse? There's only one reason, because they just had one. <laughs> and you know what the pastors used to do? They said, whatever's happening in culture, let's just go to the Bible, and let's see if the Bible says anything about it. What an interesting way to live life. To think, hey, let me see if the Bible would speak to what I'm dealing with in life, what's happening in culture. But this is what they did. So now, by the way, what verse would you use for this sermon? I've read the Bible a lot. I was surprised by the verses they used because they went to some of the minor, I mean, things that, I, I mean, literally, I've read the Bible from cover to cover probably a couple dozen times. And there's still things in the minor, I never thought of using it that without application but they said, well, no, no, I mean, you see what God did here. So that's, it's amazing. Now, all these sermons are on our website. They're uploaded. So if you ever want to go read one of these sermons, you can. There's a whole lot I'm going to show you this morning. Let me give you another example. Here is another sermon. This one was a sermon on marriage. 
Now, I only point this out because we are having a marriage crisis in America. And you know, most churches are afraid to talk about marriage because they don't want to offend people. It's interesting. Because Jesus said in Matthew 19, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother is joined with his wife and the two become one flesh and what God has put together that nobody come against. Jesus said marriage is between one man and one woman and nobody should oppose it. I think we just solved the marriage debate, right? This is not as complicated, but, but we don't teach things. That, and see, back then we're still covering how do you have a good marriage? What does it look like? How do you treat your spouse? How do you interact? How do you engage? Uh, there's a lot of significant things because... If you're not married, you probably want to be. Now, I say that. I mean, we could talk about in our culture that marriage has become secondary because my wife and I really wanted to get married. We were both virgins. There were some things we're trying to get to. All right? Actually, we pushed our wedding date up because we wanted to get married as virgins. It was getting tough. Do you know... Do you know right now that over 70% of even Christians think that cohabitation, sex before marriage, is even biblically accepted? What verse do you base it on? I mean, it's over 80% of millennials. My generation, I'm, I'm the beginning of millennials. I was born in 82. Millennials go 82 up to about the 98, 2000 region. Millennials think that marriage is a waste of time and a waste of money. And 80% think that you should live together before you even consider marriage. This is, where, this is where our culture is. So why aren't more churches preaching these sermons? Right? This is what we... But see, in early America, we, we understood, well, well, let's talk about what we're dealing with in culture, what we're getting into. What we're, here's another sermon. This is a sermon on a new planet. They had just discovered the planet Uranus. And they said, hey, well, the Bible teaches that, that God is the one that hung everything in the orbit. God's the one that put everything in the sky. And, and they go through all these incredible verses, whether you look at some of the prophets, whether you look at Psalms, but the Bible deals with it. Well, let's see what the Bible says about planets. And the Bible deals with planets. Here's another one. This is a sermon on judges. You know what's interesting is the Bible actually gives indication that nothing can bring God's wrath about as quick as judges. Because judges uphold the standard of righteousness for the land. And if judges will not judge righteously in the fear of the Lord, it says, Psalm says they can kindle God's wrath against them and the people. Well, you know, it might be interesting if we had some judges who knew how to rule in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Right? Let's have a righteous ruling. Whoa, wow, wow. We can't be too political. This isn't political if it's in the Bible. Right? This is biblical. But we've confused these thoughts. But you know, the Bible deals with the issue of judges. Here's another one. This was the arraignment and condemnation of Benjamin Goad. Now you see the top, it says the city of Sodom. Benjamin Goad was caught in the act of sodomy. Now that was a weird thing to talk about in church, except the pastor said, let's just make sure we understand the biblical position of sodomy, of homosexuality. Let, let, let's make sure we understand the way God intended human sexuality to work. And so they talked about it from the pulpits. That's interesting. Right? That's a tough topic. Here's another one. This is on comments. Now, again, what verse are you going to use for comments? Well, there was a lot they used, and they all surprised me because I forgot they were even in the Bible. But this is where they, and, and, and let me also point out, pastors preach these sermons before there was a concordance and before there was Google. So how did you find that verse? Because I Googled and still had a hard time finding it. 
But the pastors knew the Bible so well, they knew how to speak to every issue of life because the Bible deals with every issue of life. Here's another sermon, a discourse on the good education of children. You know, it might be interesting to note that this pastor did not draw attention to the fact that government was in charge of raising kids. That's so shocking to think about today because why else do we have public schools? You're supposed to raise my kids. It's interesting, that's where most Americans are. But you know, you won't stand before God on judgment day and he won't say, okay, did you make sure your kid went to public school every day? Okay, you did well, pass on. No, no, no. Your kids will not be held for the school and the teachers that taught them. Parents are responsible for their kids. And this is where this pastor is saying, hey, you better make sure that the Bible deals a lot with teaching and training the young people, the next generation. Make sure that you are teaching and training what God has instructed. And they go through the verses of what God instructed. We're supposed to teach and train our kids. Well, here's a sermon on it. Here's another sermon. This one is on the sinfulness and pernicious nature of gaming. What's well, gambling? Do you know 92% of Christians cannot name a single Bible verse that deals with gambling? So, so, so is it right or wrong? Well, if you don't know what the Bible says, it's hard to know. Right? We, we don't know how to even have a biblical position on the issue because what does the Bible say about the issue? We don't know. Well, this might be a good sermon for you to read. Well, here's another sermon. This is on a discourse on earthquakes. I was amazed how many earthquakes happened in the Bible reading this sermon. I, I mean, I knew about the, the, the earthquake right from, from the tomb where Jesus is resurrected. I knew that earthquake. Now, that's about when I ran out. There's a lot of earthquakes in the Bible, and, and it's interesting to read these sermons to see how much more is there that we don't even think about. Here's another one. Religion and patriotism, the constituents of a good soldier. This pastor preached a sermon right before his men were about to be sent off to war. He said, I want you to know if you're going to war, there's some biblical guidelines you need to think about because clearly God is the one that has gifted us to be warriors, but you need to fight war the right way with the right standard, the right rules of engagement. It's very interesting that we were talking about even soldiers back early America. Here's one. It's the execution of Henry Blackburn. Now, this is a guy who's about to get capital punishment, be put to death. Why are we talking about it in church? Well, the Bible does say the wages of sin is death. Right? There are, there are consequences for action. It's, we, we, whatever was happening in culture, we said, let's just talk. If people were talking about it, pastors wanted to talk about it because they wanted to make sure people were thinking biblically about the issues. See, today, we don't always think biblically. We always have an opinion. But it's not always biblical. And back then, we said, let's make it biblical. Here's a moral view of railroads, a sermon. <laughs> Let me help you out. That's not in the Bible. But what the pastor said, he said, you know, the Bible does talk about transportation. And the Bible does say in transportation, there's certain things you should and shouldn't do. So he goes and talks about it from the perspective of transportation. I mean, it's interesting. He makes some really great points in this sermon. Here's another sermon. The infirmities and comforts of old age. And buckle up, because this was a six-part series. Can you imagine if your pastor said, okay, guys, great news. We're going to talk about getting old the next six weeks. Okay, I'm already getting sore thinking about it, right? My knees, my back, okay. I got it. We're old. I'm tracking. This is interesting because they, they were so different in their application than just the spiritual element that sometimes we think of church today, that I want to be spiritually refueled. Well, the Bible wasn't written just to spiritually refuel you. The Bible was written to be the most practical guidebook you could ever have in life. 
And this is what we used to think about the Bible. Here's another sermon. This is the relation of the medical profession to the ministry. So if you are a medical profession, a doctor, how do you represent Christ in the medical profession? That's a sermon on it. Very interesting. Here's another one. The voice of warning to Christians on the ensuing election of a president of the United States. You know, if there's one sermon that will cause a lot of controversy today, it's that one right there. But, you know, pastors used to say, hey, let, let's move beyond the fact of who's running and let's look at issues. Now, now, by the way, the reason is there was only one perfect person that ever ran for office and, and he lost. They chose Barabbas. Right. He didn't win his election. So beyond Jesus, there is no perfect person that will ever run for office again. But what we do is say, hey, let's, let's look at the, the position and the values and the issues that they're going on. And, and that's what this pastor did. Said, well, this person supports this issue and this person supports this issue. What is the biblical position on the issue? And that's what they did. And, and the warning was, you cannot vote for this person because of this position. That is unacceptable and God will condemn that position. That's interesting. But this is, again... This, this is what pastors did in early America. They dealt with the issues. And, and one of the things that we don't do very well on today, pastors made sure that we were thinking biblically on the issues. Today, if, if we look at what's happening with the issues, right? You look at the news. We are faster to form an opinion of what we think than we are to check the Bible and see what it says about the issue. So most of Christians, they, well, I, I feel this. Well, I think this. I don't care about your feelings or your thoughts. I want to know what does the Bible say? Because I want to have the biblical position. And this is where as Christians, more than a feeling, more than a thought, more than a whatever, we ought to be going, hey, let's, let's, let's just see what the Bible says on the issue. And this is where John Adams was so good at talking about the pastors. But what he said is, he said, our pulpits have thundered. Now, what he means when he says thundered is that their pastors talked really loud about the issues. They were not afraid to talk about the issues. I mean, you know, today, how many people would get offended and leave if we said, well, the Bible says this about the issue? Well, I don't agree with that. Okay, well, I mean, you can disagree with God, but that's between you and him. That's not between you and the pastor, right? But here's what we do. Well, John Adams says, no, no, no. Early America, our pastors weren't scared to talk about the issues. They're going to say, here's what the Bible says about the issues. Buckle up. Because our pulpits thundered. Well, this is what we used to know. In fact, there's a historian. His name is Bishop Charles Galloway. He was an Anglican theologian. 1898 wrote a, a book talking about the American clergy, early American pastors. And here's what he said to describe the American pastors in the founding era. He said about the pastors, mighty men they were, men of iron nerve and strong hand, unblanched cheek and a heart of flame. God needed not read shaken by the wind, nor men clothed in soft raiment but heroes of hardihood and lofty courage. And such were the sons of the mighty who responded to the divine call. Now, he's talking about the backbone of pastors. I don't know if that accurately describes all pastors today, but he's talking about they weren't scared and God needed strength and they provided strength for the nation. Now, that's probably where we are today, but let me just back up in history and show you some fun stories. See, historically, we know about Paul Revere when he made his famous midnight ride, but sometimes we're told the story inaccurately because we're told that he, he rode yelling, the British are coming, the British are coming. Paul Revere didn't just randomly arbitrate, like a drunk man, right? Like, he didn't randomly ride around yelling, the British are coming. 
He actually was writing specifically to warn two people. He wrote to find John Hancock and Sam Adams. And the reason was the British had released an order. And this British order explained that their business was not just to seize military supplies. It was also to get the bodies of Mr. Hancock and Adams. So they're coming. To, now, those two guys, the ones that lead the Sons of Liberty. So the British thought if we can kill them, we can stop the revolution. So Paul Revere is actually writing to warn these two guys, you got to go. The British are coming. They know where you are. you got to get out of here. Well, where they were was they were staying in the home of someone at Lexington Green, where the shot heard around the world happened. So that's where the British marched. Well, the home they were staying in was the home of the Reverend Jonas Clark. The Reverend Jonas Clark was a local pastor, but he also was the friend and mentor of these two guys. And so as they're having a discussion, the question comes up, Pastor... If the British really are marching here, and if they really are coming to, to attack the town, do you think the men of the town will, will be willing and ready to defend the town? Jonas Clark, they said, got a little indignant. He said, of course the men are ready. I've been training them for just such a moment. As if he always knew the British were coming, right? Okay, sure you were. Well, the next morning, the British arrived. When the British arrived, there were more than 700 British, and they went up against 73 Americans. Now, those aren't odds I would favor, but those 73 stood their ground. At the end of the shot heard around the world, there were 18 men lying dead and wounded. Among those who were there was John Robbins, a white guy, and Prince Esterbrook, a black guy, who were fighting for freedom together, but they also attended church together. They went to the church of the Reverend Jonas Clark together. Well, after the British leave Lexington Green, they're marching toward Concord because that's where the military storehouse was. So when they get to Concord, they're actually met with a little bit of a rude welcome. The Reverend William Emerson led 300 men out and they opened fire on the British as they're trying to take the town. Well, the British did not appreciate the welcome. They turned and decided, okay, you guys keep your stuff. We're done. We'll leave. So they march on the road back to Boston. On the road back to Boston, they are surrounded and actually, specifically, they're more ambushed than anything, but they're ambushed on the road back by some four to 5,000 Americans. Now, why in the world are they ambushed? Well, because they've already opened fire at Lexington at Concord. They've declared war, so at this point, ambush is okay because you started the war, we're coming at you. So they are going to the British. What's interesting is, you know the history books used to note who those four to 5,000 Americans were. In fact, from early history books, this is from an early history book. It says, the Reverend William Payson led a group of his men to attack the English as they retreated to Boston. Here's another one. The Reverend Benjamin Balch led a group of men to attack the English as they retreated. It went through and it identified the pastors who were leading their congregations. That would probably be frowned upon today. Nonetheless, that's what, 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 when the British get back to Boston, this is where you have the Battle of Bunker Hill. What's also it's worth pointing out is in, in this painting of the Battle of Bunker Hill, over on the right side, this guy is the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Militarily, he received 12 commendations for his bravery on the battlefield. Well, that's a black patriot by the name of Peter Salem. Now, Salem Port was also there, but that's Peter Salem. He's standing behind Lieutenant Thomas Grosvenor, and, and those guys were well-recognized military leaders at the time. Today, we had no idea there was even a black man in the painting, much less he was the hero of the battle. Well, this is the history that we just don't have any idea of today. Well, as this is all happening, this happens within just a few weeks, word gets out, and as word gets out what's happened in Boston, 
people began coming to give aid and offer assistance. You had people like the Reverend David Avery from Vermont led 20 men from his church. The Reverend Stephen Farrar from New Hampshire led 97 men from his church. The Reverend Joseph Willer led two full companies from his church. You have the Reverend Jonathan Steele from Pennsylvania led 900 men. If you got 900 men in your church, that would be a mega church today. Like that early America, that's a huge church. Well, you also had people like the Reverend John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, led 300 men from his church. These are all pastors leading their men to battle. Well, well, today we had no idea. Pastors were involved? Absolutely. We just don't realize how religious they were. In fact, the leader of the forces from New Jersey was the Reverend James Caldwell. James Caldwell was a pastor, but one of the things that happened is during one of their battles, their men ran out of wadding for their guns. Now, for a muzzle-loaded weapon, if you run out of wadding, you can't even shoot your gun anymore. So well, if you're out of wadding, you can't fight back. So what do you do? He says, men, follow me. He led them to the local church of the town. Not his town, but there was a church there. He leads in the church. He ran inside, and he grabbed a stack of hymn books. They were Isaac Watts hymn books. He came out with a stack of hymn books, and he had up, held up a hymn book. And, and the famous saying, which is reported, he said, was, let's give them Watts, boys. Let's feed them Watts. Isaac Watts was a hymn writer, so he's saying, let's shoot Watts at the... Okay, so there's a connection there. But as he leads them into battle, word gets out to the British that he's the commander of the force, this pastor. So the British send a detachment. They knew where he lived. They went to his house. The British surrounded his house. They opened fire on his dinner table. His family was there. They killed his wife. He was able to escape. His kids survived. He's able to get his kids, took them to a local farm, dropped them off with another family. It did not stop him. He continued. He led the forces throughout the week. Every weekend he preached a sermon. So Sunday he opened up his Bible. He drew a pistol. He set it on one side of his Bible. Drew a second pistol. Set it on the other side of the Bible. He then looked at the men. He said, the British will not stop me from preaching but they are welcome to try. That is awesome. That guy's an Alaskan at heart. He's pretty brave. Well, he, he was a representative of the kind of pastors you saw in early America who were getting involved, who said, no, 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 no. We're not backing down from fighting for the freedom that God's word talks about. And, and, and they address these issues talking about them. Well, if, if, if you go forward, the, J.T. Headley, who was a historian, he talked about how, how pastors were a unique breed. And here's what he said about pastors. He said, the patriotic clergy of the revolution were the soundest statesmen of the time. You know, today, when we talk about American statesmen, people talk about George Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Patrick Henry. They don't talk about pastors. This historian said, no, no, the pastors, they were the best spoken people of anybody back then. Today, we don't recognize. No, see, this is the leadership of pastors, the leadership of the church. Today, we don't recognize. But even if we talk about the founding fathers, if you look at the signers of the Declaration, you know, today we're told, well, they weren't religious. They, they were atheists and agnostics and deists. They weren't a separation of church and state. It just proves how dumb we are to believe this. Do you know of the 56 signers, 29 of those guys graduated from Bible schools and seminaries? Now, I don't know many atheists that go to Bible college. 
I, I don't think that's their normal activity, but this was what the founding fathers did. In fact, four of the signers of the Declaration were actually ministers and missionaries at the time they signed. So, 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 so this was not unusual for them. Well, let me go forward a little bit. So after we do the Declaration, we separate it from Great Britain. So now every single state has to write their own state constitution. So who's going to write your state constitution? Well, the state said, hey, let's get the leaders of our state to start writing constitutions. So they went and started asking the leaders of their state to come and write their constitutions. These are the men who wrote the constitutions in those early states and those early colonies. You mean pastors wrote it? Yeah, that's why if you read every single early colony's constitution, it talks about God and Jesus and Christianity and the Bible and religious liberty. Well, where did we come up with those ideas? The pastors. This is where today we have no idea the influence of Christians and pastors, but it's so obvious historically. In fact, even if you look at the Constitution, when you look at what we did with the Constitution, the guys who were there gave the Constitution, when they finally get it written, it then has to go to the states to be ratified. As it goes to the states to be ratified, what was interesting is, is they didn't send, the Constitution is a government document. They did not send it to government buildings to be ratified. Do you know in some states, they sent it to one place, and it was churches. Why would you send a government document to churches? Well, because guess where your government leaders were? They were in church. And do you know that 44 of the ratification delegates of the U.S. Constitution were actually pastors? So, so the reason we actually have the Constitution is because of pastors. They're the ones who did it. I can give you one further. Look at the Bill of Rights. On the Bill of Rights, there are only two signatures in the Bill of Rights. John Adams, who's the vice president, and this guy, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg was the brother of John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. And this was a pastor who led his men into battle. Now, John Peter also, he served in the State Assembly in Virginia in 1776. The British came and attacked where their State Assembly was. So John Peter rides back from Williamsburg. He rides to Woodstock, Virginia, and got there in time for the Sunday service. When he got there, he gets up in his pulpit. And back then there was an elevated pulpit because they didn't have microphones. So elevated was their sound system. So he climbs up into his pulpit. He opens up his Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where it says there's a time, there's a season, a purpose for everything under heaven. He starts in verse 1. There's a time to be born and a time to die. He then goes all the way to verse 8, which says there's a time for peace. And there's a time for war. He closed his Bible. He says, brethren, we are no longer at a time of peace. We are now in a time of war. And he explained to them how the British had just attacked the Americans in Williamsburg. He says, so we are now at war with the British. Now, that's the equivalent of someone today coming in and saying, hey, the Americans have just attacked us. Richardson has attacked Anchorage. We're at war. Let's pray. That's what he did. So everybody's like, what? You, you can imagine. Like, there's a freak out level happening. So he closes in prayer. And then what, what you always did back then is every pastor would dismount the pulpit. They would go off and do a little side closet room called the vestry room. And they would disrobe. He stayed in his pulpit, elevated pulpit. And he began disrobing to reveal he was wearing the uniform of a Continental Army officer. He then dismounts the pulpit. In his officer's uniform, begins walking down the aisle of his church. He tells his church, brethren, we came to this land to practice our liberties. But if we will not get involved and fight, we will lose everything we came here to enjoy. He says, I'm going to fight to defend our freedoms. Who wants to go with me? 300 men met him. They became the 8th Virginia Brigade. Well, he goes on to become a major general in the Revolution, one of only 19 guys to achieve this rank. Washington was a major general, although he was just 
the, the commander of, of them all, but he's one of the 19 guys. This is him in that picture of the surrender at Saratoga, or excuse me, the, the, of Yorktown, the surrender of Cornwallis' sword. Well, if you ever go to Valley Forge, there's also the Muhlenberg Barracks, which is where his men tried to survive that winter at Valley Forge. Well, his brother was Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, who was a pastor in New York City. And Frederick writes his brother a letter and says, brother, okay, you totally blew it. Your job as a pastor is to stand behind the pulpit and tell people about Jesus. Your job is not to get involved in, in the affairs of men. Well, John Peter wrote him back and he says, brother, do you think that you would even have the freedom to preach if it wasn't for people like me fighting to defend your freedom? Well, they start this exchange and Frederick tells them, he says, yes. He says, we have in New York, we have great relationship with the British. He says, you people in Virginia, you have hotheads like Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson. He says, y'all don't know how to get along with the British in New York. We're much more level-headed. We have great relations. The reality was the British just hasn't, hadn't made it to New York, New York yet. In 1777, they marched into New York City. And the common practice was because the British often blamed pastors for the revolution, the practice was they would destroy the churches in the town. So there were 19 churches in New York City. They burned 10 to the ground. They then destroyed the other nine. Frederick was pulled out of his church and had to watch as they burned his church to the ground. All of a sudden, Frederick had an epiphany. You know, I think my brother might have been right. I think I need... Well, he decides he wants to get involved. He does get involved. He becomes the very first ever Speaker of the House. And that's why on the Bill of Rights, you see Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, who was the Reverend Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. Well, do you know even the Bill of Rights? If we look at the people who gave us the Bill of Rights, there was a group of pastors who were part of the committee who did the Bill of Rights. Pastors? Yeah, because the Bill of Rights is about protecting your religious freedom, not a separation of church and state. That's totally different. But again, this is just pastors as you look throughout the entire founding and forming of our nation, everything that we didn't accomplish, it's because of the church. If it was not, if there weren't Christians and pastors, America never would have happened. We would be British, right? We'd have weird accents and gross teeth. It'd be terrible. No offense, but it's funny. The reason... The reason we enjoy what we enjoy today is because pastors, Christians, the church said, we're not going to stand by and watch our nation be torn apart. We're not going to stand by and lose every freedom that we have always enjoyed. No, we're not going to lose all this. And you know, it's interesting because as we look at our culture today, do you know every single problem we can identify? The solution is not going to be in government. The solution is not in a new law. The solution is not in some new federal appointment. The solution is in God's people as the church saying, you know what? Let's get involved and fix this problem. The American Revolution was about Christians getting involved and fighting for freedom, for liberty. And this is where when we look at our nation today, you know, a lot of people get so discouraged looking at America. Oh, my gosh, we have so many problems. I'm not discouraged at all. Because never has a Christian's voice been more relevant to culture than right now. Never has what you have been more needed. I love to live in a relevant time. I love to be in a place where, where I can present truth and it can really set a captive free. I, I love being in this moment. And, and even as we look at, at, at the terrible things happening around us, you know, it's, people are so upset by the darkness of culture by the darkness that surrounds us spiritually, darkness doesn't bother me. If I walk in a dark room, I'm not scared of the dark room. 
I just reach over and turn on a light. But you know, Jesus told us, you are the light of the world. We are the solution. And, and, and as we're saying this, let me, let me tell you two things. We have a website, wallbuilders.com, where if you want to read some of those sermons, if you want to see some more of this history, some of these heroes you've never heard of, you can go to our website, check stuff out. One of the things I'll tell you too is we do have a, a, a book called the Founder's Bible, where in this Bible, as you read the Bible, which by the way, I will challenge every Christian, you need to read your Bible. All right, that's where the solutions are. But as you read the Bible, we actually, we, we have... I mentioned 120,000 things from before 1812. Every time we saw the founding fathers talk about how they used the Bible to shape an institution, a policy, a law, we put their statement footnoted beside the verse. So you can read the Bible and see how literally the Bible shaped our nation. Really cool deal. But this is this beyond just the fact that there's a, a, a Bible we want to encourage you. If you don't have a Bible or you're not reading your Bible, I would encourage you. Founders Bible is a great one to read. But I would say in general, you should read your Bible. Do you know about only 3% of Christians read, have read their Bible from cover to cover? 3%. I would say it, it should be embarrassing to say you base your life on a book that you've never read. Right? I mean, that, that's kind of weird. But I can also tell you that if we would spend more time in our word, we would find every answer and every solution to every problem in our culture around us and then we can be the ones saying, hey, guys, here's a solution. We have the answer. I don't need to turn on some news and watch four and five people arguing about the answer. I'll just open my Bible and go, oh, there it is. That's the answer. What our culture needs are Christians who know the word of God, who know the answer, and will have the boldness to stand up and say, here's what we need to do. Our culture is not so far gone that God, through his people, cannot bring redemption and restoration but it's time for Christians to stand up. Thank you guys so much. Amen. Well, we're going to take a moment to sow seed into this incredible ministry. And could you just come? I know Pastor Daniel gave a, a small uh, intro about what you guys do, but can you tell us just so the people have a vision of what they're sowing into? And ushers, would you come as uh, people prepare to um, give? Ask the Lord what he would have you give this morning and sow. Absolutely. We, we work, uh, do a lot with education, uh, whether it's curriculum, state standards. Um, we do a lot with also states for, for uh, legislatively. Um, we have a network of about 900 state legislators. So even some from Alaska that we're trying to help promote for family values, uh, family policy, religious liberty, things that we're seeing lost in our nation. We do a lot of education. Uh, we also work with a lot of congressmen. You know, one of the things we can look at Washington, D.C. and go, they've got problems, and they do. But we would have no idea. You know, there's about 150 sold out Bible believers that are congressmen in Washington, D.C. It's amazing. They have Bible studies every morning together. They have prayer meetings every, every time before they vote. They go to prayer and say, God, help me have the wisdom to vote correctly in this issue. It's amazing. Now, they need more help because they're outnumbered by the people that don't believe in God. 
But, but we work with those kind of people to help them have the, the historical background, the historical knowledge. So as they're passing legislation, we can point to early things. Uh, we, we fight for a lot of religious liberty in states, but a lot of things we're seeing lost in culture, we try to fight to do that. We, we travel to a lot of churches trying to encourage the, the, the Christian community. We got to stand up and be an answer and solution. So, so a lot of what we do from American history is just learning from the example, the model, and the story and saying, hey, History shows us every time people followed the word of God, it worked well for them. And every time they reject biblical standards, they have problems. History is just an easy way to show that. And, and our history is rich with people that said, let's use the word of God to solve problems. In fact, every single problem we can point to in our nation, I can show you the Christian who went to the Bible, who brought the solution to that problem. And, and this is why our nation is not perfect. But our nation has been different because we've had Christians who've been leading the way on every area in front. And that's why our nation has been so special. But as we have problems, we know the solution. It's gotta be Christians standing up, leading the way, saying this is how we solve the problem. So that's a lot of what we do is challenging people to get involved, helping people that are involved and being really kind of an equipping ministry in that sense.